0: You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So, welcome to the first Simulcast Journal Club for 2021. I'm Victoria Brazzle, and I'm joined again by Ben Simon to be talking all things simulation literature. How are you, Ben?
1: Mate, I'm good, and it's uh, good to be back after a nice summer break and uh, ready to hit the year with some more papers and
0: discussion. Yes, and we'll talk more about the year at the end. But uh, we're doing something a little bit different this time because obviously January, is particularly in our part of the world, people are a little slow to get back into the work mode. So we've done the work for our listeners this month and we've just picked out three articles that we thought we would talk about uh, from a range of different contexts, I suppose. Uh, but next month, Ben, we're back looking for people to join some online discussions. So we haven't stopped asking our community to do some work just yet.
1: That's right. You're not off the hook just yet.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, we might jump into our first article, and the title of this one is COVID Sim, Building Testing Capacity Through Public Engagement with Healthcare Simulation. And this is from Natasha Christaludis, uh William Duggan and Kirsten Dalrymple. And this is one of those in-practice reports in BMJ Stell uh, from April last year. And to give a little bit of background uh, to this, very broad background, I think, Ben, we are seeing some modest steps in exploring the involvement of healthcare consumers in design and delivery of SIM and as participants in SIM. And I suppose this paper is maybe taking one of the steps towards that. Uh, I know that you've also even published on this topic I guess it almost feels like it's very late in the game for us to be really talking about healthcare consumers in Sim. What do you think?
1: Uh, uh, Well, I don't feel it's too late in the game. I guess it's interesting. I think it would be nice if the conversation had happened earlier in the development of simulation as a specialty. Um, but I also get that it takes time for a, a specialty to reach a level of maturity when it can, where it can start asking some of the bigger questions and making sure that we've invited the appropriate voices to the table. Uh, so I think it's a really exciting and expanding area of simulation that I'm hoping we'll get to explore more in the coming years uh, as we get more sort of sophisticated Uh, at it and more used to setting an expectation that for the right type of sim that there is healthcare consumer engagement.
0: Mm. And of course, it's probably not really that new. It's just that as a obvious healthcare simulation community, we're embracing it somewhat belatedly. I think we were always doing uh, surf lifesaving clubs, teaching people how to do CPR on the beach, and that was a simulation. But uh, maybe this is about connecting some worlds, which is a good thing. So yes, the context of this particular paper, uh, and again, think back to April 2020 when this was published, uh, focuses on the COVID pandemic and saying that the testing process is actually quite a big challenge and it was quite a novel one uh, back then. And so this paper really is looking at a way of using simulation to train volunteers uh, for a drive-through testing clinic, uh, thus hoping to free up People like doctors, nurses, and other healthcare providers to go back and do the jobs they're good at doing uh, while getting these skills which it seems are learnable and attainable by people who are not uh, formally healthcare trained. And I'm going to quote from the background here because I think it's quite nice and sort of makes a important reference to expand the use of simulation beyond its dominant use in training and assessment to its full potential, including making it readily accessible and relevant to the public. And they go. On to talk about Roger Nebone's terminology of distributed simulation. And I guess the relevance of that is that these authors are from Imperial College in London, where Roger Nebone has worked, and so are probably influenced by him. So what did they actually do? Well, what they did was they got volunteers from the public and they set up uh, simulated test centres and uh, trained these volunteers in PPE, donning and doffing, and also the process for swabbing. And as I said, very with a very explicit aim about getting the um, healthcare providers back to their jobs. And their training was in two phases and I thought this was quite neat and seems to follow some good practice uh, that we should do in simulation, which is starting with the uh discrete skills elements so they did the donning and doffing they did the swabbing on a mannequin head they practiced the communication uh the consent and the explanation they did all those things as demonstrations practice with feedback and then they did a scenario that put it all together so they had a mannequin in some sort of a simulated car they had a voice of the patient explaining what they were doing doing the swab and presumably the mannequin didn't actually drive the car off, but uh, we get the impression that's the process that we went through. And they've kind of outlined that pretty nicely. And, in fact, Ben, I thought uh, this is probably better than some of the things that uh, we do and nicely sequenced. What did you think?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I really loved that the design work of starting with the skills first and putting it all together and I guess I did as I was reading it wonder to myself do we actually need the sim at the end or do you just need a lot more rehearsal of those components Um, but I think particularly for uh, non-medical or nursing background uh, healthcare consumers it would make sense that that Wrap to bring it all together uh, with a more complex simulation and putting it within that clinical context is useful. So I I, I admire that greatly.
0: Yes, and they haven't actually done the level of evaluation to sort of ascertain what difference, for instance, doing an integrated simulation did over and above skills practice. Uh, And their discussion, as with many of these in-practice reports, is more... Uh, general than really sort of proving that it worked. But they interestingly had quite a discussion in here about fidelity, which is probably a bit of a lead into next month's journal club, and about, well, what's actually going to be important to these volunteers in terms of thinking about what challenges they're actually going to have? And clearly you don't need to have an all-singing, all-dancing 3G mannequin to practice doing swabbing on. Uh, But the key elements of the challenge, for instance, it's quite possible that the communication elements with the general public are probably one of the most challenging things, as opposed to the actual sticking the swab up the nose. Uh, and I think they also do nicely say that our principles of simulation shouldn't be any different. Just because we're engaging with healthcare consumers either as participants or as providers, it's still all about practice, experimentation, feedback, and debriefing, which are the cornerstones. And what they hope is that this serves as a bit of a template for more of this uh, distributed simulation. So. I think a good addition to the literature, Ben.
1: Yeah, agreed. I thought it was a nice quick read of a good, sensible idea. Um, I kind of felt like there was the a, the detail was fairly sparse, and it was more focused on a quick snapshot, which is appropriate for this type of article in particular, which I'm always a big fan of. I did love the uh, I'm going to go semi rant about our obsession with immersion and fidelity actually getting in the way of learning outcomes which was a tone that i totally appreciated i did worry that there was significant word count given to that that wasn't super super relevant to the actual project and i I would have loved to have heard more detail about experience of the participants etc but yeah i thought it was a great idea
0: yes it would be lovely to know now and maybe i should have emailed the uh, authors to know uh, how many of those volunteers are still doing that kind of a job, uh, whether they did find it useful or whether they would have just picked it up in the first hour of buddying someone, I, I guess these are the comparisons that we would make. Do we need this level of sim or is it actually something you can pick up just by watching someone? Uh, I, you know, I, We don't know the answer to that, but I'd like to think that this uh, rigorous approach is certainly a good starting point.
1: Agreed. All right. Over to me then. So I get the pleasure of uh, discussing an article that you are a co-author on, I believe. Uh, So we are going to talk about an article entitled Peer-Assisted Learning in Simulation-Based Medical Education, a Mixed Methods Exploratory Study. And it's published in BMJ Stell 2020, uh, and the lead author is Leo Nunink uh, et al., And so, look, peer-assisted learning is defined within this article as people from similar social groupings who are not professional teachers helping each other to learn and learning themselves through teaching. And it's been espoused as a strategy with multiple benefits from enhancing student content knowledge and educational skills to sometimes being proposed as a highly efficient educational delivery model. Uh, But the authors here point out that there isn't much in the literature regarding how this works within simulation-based education, and particularly with regard to the idea of students creating their own simulation programs for themselves. So the authors, including yourself, set out to explore the perceptions of senior medical students at two of our local universities, Bond and University of Queensland, to teaching and learning in simulation-based education using peer-assisted learning. And there's kind of two parts from my perspective to this paper, one being a description of the actual project, which is interesting in itself, where the med students designed, delivered and debriefed a simulation for their peers with appropriate levels of faculty support. And then there's the mixed method analysis of the students' perceptions through the exploration of free text responses, Likert scales and a focus group post scenario that were contributed by the students participating in the study. And early on in the analysis, Vic, it seemed like there was a little bit of a problem that the team wrestled with in that the med students loved giving feedback about SIM in general when you were trying to extract specifics of their experience within this project with regard to the peer-assisted learning aspect. And I loved how this was acknowledged, but that there was also still a lot of really interesting and pretty specific qualitative pearls out there that came out of the analysis. So what did I learn from what you found? Well, the students certainly liked it and they would recommend it, uh, but varied in their perspectives on giving and receiving feedbacks from their peers. They described learning a lot about SIM and writing a case that empowered them to see the patient journey with more empathy for the patient's experience, which I loved as well. And then with regard to giving and receiving feedback, I was really interested because there wasn't universal agreement on their preferences. And I would say certainly in a lot of courses I teach on, there is potentially a little bit of a myth or over-quoting of this idea that people always value feedback from their peers more highly than they do from faculty or educators. Um, And that wasn't necessarily the case with the feedback from the students. You know, There there were some who certainly enjoyed that uh, sense of being even rungs on the hierarchy ladder, uh, but others who really respected and appreciated the brevity and synthesis that faculty could bring sometimes to those feedback conversations. So that was a nice surprise for me uh, that I hadn't heard discussed before. Uh, Interestingly, it was a highly regarded experience, but when asked about the value-add of this particular program, the response was a little bit mixed as well, in that students did find the additional learnings Uh, were great, but some of them did voice that they weren't necessarily sure it was worth the opportunity cost that they had to put into uh, the sim design and their efforts towards delivery. And then also the authors point out that rather than being an efficient time-sparing exercise, it was actually a significantly resource-intensive one. Uh, That certainly made me, as I was reading it, uh, think about the contrast a little bit somewhat to Sandra Vigga's recent paper about utilising med students as long-term faculty, but a smaller volume of students in Denmark. And I know that was noted in the paper as well about potential solutions to this being a smaller group of students for a longer period of time. So I really enjoyed this paper, Vic, but my question for you is, uh, it's an interesting project. Are you going to continue to do it?
0: Ah, We certainly are, Ben. And I think to sort of wind back a little bit, the uh, team at University of Queensland were inspirational with this. When they first told me about it, I went, you get the students to do what? I just didn't have any faith that students could possibly design and deliver simulations. After all... We're such experts, and it's taken us so long to become so good at what we do. How could these students pick it up? But interestingly, they did, albeit, as you indicated, with a fair bit of help. And it did take a bit of uh, extra effort to try and coach them through it. Uh, Yes, we're still going to do it, though, because I think the students really enjoy it. And I think picking up on some of the themes you pointed out, as the people writing the scenarios, they get so much clinical learning from that process, which as we know as educators, far exceeds what they get as learners in the same process. So it just goes to show the best way to learn anything is to try and teach it. Uh, And I do think, and as you might have noticed in the paper, the University of Queensland group, you were working with mannequins, we were working with simulated patients, and I think there were some important differences as well, but I think both of them in different ways, they really had to think what is the experience of the patient here and how can we manifest that and how can we portray that. And hang on, have we really got the right idea about that? So even just to stop and think that for a minute was, was a really good thing. So, yes, we're still going to continue to do it because we do think it's got a lot of gains, but um, I wouldn't recommend it to someone who saw it as a... Uh, way of efficiently getting more sim done Uh, i think there does come a pretty quick cut point because don't forget these students turn up in one rotation to do one half day of simulation that they prepared for in advance whereas even our students who spend six or seven weeks with us in a dedicated sim rotation very quickly become much more useful and i think if they were running the sims i would say yes it's it's a time efficient thing but uh, for us what we illustrated in the results here we also did actually touch and feel as a real uh, practice that we want to continue
1: and um, from a hidden curriculum point of view has or even from a cultural compression point of view do you think there's any transfer of ownership to themselves for future professional development and ownership?
0: Mm-hmm. Of their own? that would be hard to prove and i hesitate to claim it but i think it's true so two things that i was really hoping would happen out of this one was a greater appreciation of how to be an effective learner and i think when you're spending when you're traversing two sides of a teaching and learning interaction you often pick up much better ways to learn from simulation and i do think that's probably uh more bang for buck than faculty development really would be learner Uh, development. The second thing, uh, I guess this is more of a life goal, (laughs) is to make peer uh, performance reflective conversations normal. And I was blown away with how well most of these students did at having conversations with their peers, Uh, relatively objectively, mostly sensitively, uh, but as I said, pretty rigorously. And that was without all our fancy frameworks and debriefing. We just tried to keep it pretty simple, albeit with some supervision. But I would really like to think we just make having performance conversations normal between peers.
1: That sounds awesome. I'll hand it back to you. Thanks for a lovely paper.
0: (laughs) You're listening to Simulcast. All right, well, our last paper takes a bit of a different tack again. We've gone from an in-practice report to a sort of mixed methods and qualitative study and now to a systematic review. So this is simulation-based team training in time, critical clinical presentations in emergency medicine and critical care a review of the literature. And this is by a team from Denmark, so We'll, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that appropriately in Danish, uh, and colleagues. And uh, just as a little bit of a shout-out here, this team is from Horsens in Denmark, and they're actually part of the Alphurs University Hospital where Christian Crow is from. So where is the starting point for this? The background that they talk about is, look, simulation-based team training is quite widespread, particularly in emergency medicine and critical care. And, Ben, you and I know that. Uh, For better or worse, because if we actually look at the literature, they certainly claim that in areas like cardiac arrest and trauma there actually is a wealth of literature that seems to suggest benefit. Uh, Now, I'll qualify that by saying, depending on exactly what kind of benefit you're talking about, but there is a wealth of literature that looks at non-technical skills, practicing teamwork, ensuring patient safety in these areas. Uh, This Systematic review, though, was looking very specifically at the non-trauma, non-cardiac arrest, time-critical events. So this is probably things like shock, things like stroke, uh, and some other things that we also know, um, cardiac arrhythmia, for example, that might be time-critical but not in those better-studied contexts. So uh, what they actually did, and I'm going to read from their review, was they aimed to determine evidence to support the usefulness of simulation-based team training in these contexts as measured by the Kirkpatrick outcomes. And I will go through those. I know they're really familiar to some of our listeners, but maybe not to others. So the the way that they were looking at uh, whether this simulation-based team training was useful was did it improve attitudes towards sim training? So that's level one. Did it improve the team skills in simulation settings? Level two. Uh, Did it improve team skills in clinical practice, level three, uh, or did it actually improve clinical and patient outcomes, level four? Now, this obviously is not a framework that is unique to SIM. This is used in a lot of medical education contexts. And, again, there's a pretty big body of literature, some of which really likes Kirkpatrick levels and some of which doesn't. I think I'll leave it at that, Ben. And they did it as a systematic review. And again, I'm not going to go heavy on that partly because I'm no expert, but they use the PRISMA guidelines, which are a sort of way of ensuring some quality uh, in the and consistency in the reporting of how people go about doing it. And they describe their PICO, their population, their intervention, their comparison and their outcomes. Uh, So, Ben, you're still with me there? I guess this is still the kind of article that we have to know how to read, even if it's not uh, something that we are able to do as experts.
1: Yes, and I am very eternally grateful that other people are willing to do it for us and we just have to read it. So thank you.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, and there is a science to it. You can't just say I read a few articles and here's what I reckon they said. This Mm -hmm. actually is a way of capturing that. Uh, And I guess it is a systematic review as opposed to a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis needs outcomes to be very homogeneous and to be able to compare things numerically whereas a systematic review is still about um, a bit more breadth of outcomes even though they're nicely uh, categorized as they are in this study. So to kind of summarise it a little bit, and again, if you look at the paper, they've got uh, one of these classic Prisma flow diagrams, which says they found heaps of studies, you know, seven hundred, and then they take out the duplicates. They find that some of them aren't exactly addressing the question, uh, and then you, and then they have to take some out because again, they're excluded for not quite fitting the criteria. And they ended up with thirteen studies that fit this criteria of looking at simulation-based team training. Uh, either before or after studies or comparison to something that's not simulation-based team training in these uh, time-critical contexts. Now, they then went through the studies and found a range of interesting points from all of them, Uh, and probably starting at the sort of so-called top level, the Kirkpatrick Level 3, they found two studies that at least aim to look at these higher-order Uh, are teams actually performing better in clinical practice? And some of these are from colleagues that we know and from papers that we've even looked at. Uh, But I think it's probably fair to say that not a lot of them were hugely impressive in saying, yes, simulation-based team training is heaps better than the alternative. Uh, And a couple of them were by self-report only. Some of them were non-significant findings but suggested they were underpowered Uh, A lot more of the studies focused on these level one or two and some of them had some interesting outcomes, things like reduction in sick leave, uh, things like the ability to recognise latent safety threats or increase in other measures like safety climate, stuff that I guess a lot of us don't necessarily know about. But I think overall really this study and I guess the very nature of a systematic review is they're trying to find ways in which we try and prove an outcome from simulation-based team training. And I'd have to say that overall we didn't find a lot of satisfaction here. Uh, Is that your read of it, Ben?
1: It is my read of it, and I did love that they took, you know, that they took some accountability and pointed the analytic lens at some of the less popular slash sexy simulations that we do and held it to a similar standard of accountability that they do for others. Uh, But I think there's more to the story. (laughs)
0: Yes, absolutely. And I guess, you know, if you've done a really rigorous systematic review like this and you've got the outcome, what do you say in your discussion? Well, I can tell you what they said in theirs. Uh, They kind of went through some of the issues um, in doing this kind of research, and one is there's lots of bias because, not surprisingly, many of these studies are run by simulation enthusiasts and they might not have great experts in finding good outcomes uh, I know Mary Dixon Woods and her team have just published a paper on how difficult it is to get good measures for interventions uh, in any kind of quality improvement um, and or education particularly in team contexts. Uh, So there's lots of biases, but interestingly, despite having no satisfaction from looking at these RCTs, they say, well, the best thing to do is to do more RCTs, have some more control groups and comparisons, and I'm not sure if that is the right approach because I do think, to use a word that I'm vaguely qualified to use, barely qualified to use rather, this is a sort of positivist worldview which says here we were before, we do an intervention and SIM is an intervention as though it's a homogeneous thing and then look we're better later and i think what i've learned from some others uh, including my colleague eve purdy is maybe it's just a matter of finding out what is the impact on whom and when and in what context and there's a good reason why these interventions aren't all the same and why the outcomes aren't all the same and it may be better to try and understand that rather than uh, trying to prove that it whatever it is works um have i is that enough of a rant from me ben
1: Uh, I could listen to it for a little bit longer, but I think you've got some thoughts from Eve as well. Is that right?
0: I have indeed. So I thought rather than me be critical uh, without a lot of um, qualifications to provide an alternative, I did ask Eve, who's an anthropologist and skilled qualitative researcher, how she might see this both in terms of the risks of continuing with the sort of RCT approach versus, well, if we don't do that, Are there some better ways? And so here's what she had to say.
2: Look, I think there's some real risks to making randomized controlled trials the next gold standard of research in this area. It risks us focusing on easy to measure outcomes, not important to measure experiences it risks us as a community focusing on these moments of simulation, these isolated clinical problems, uh, rather than understanding um, the impact of simulation programs that are embedded in departments in response to the needs of those departments. Those needs will be different uh, from department to department. I agree that we need some better, higher quality evidence Uh, And I think that qualitative research plays a part uh, in gathering that evidence. Sure, it needs to go beyond the simple pre-post surveys that we saw in uh, a lot of this work. Um, It can be qualitative research that helps us understand exactly what is going on uh, in the simulation room, the relationships that are being formed, the assumptions that are being made. Um, It uh, could look like very focused research on uh, what an institution needs and how a simulation program can match uh, those needs. But perhaps more excitingly, uh, we might even begin to think about how Uh, a simulation program fits into the culture of a department. How can we use simulation to shape the way that people feel about their work and themselves and their relationships? We're starting to see in a little bit of the work that we do that a consistent, regular simulation program actually might be a part of shaping how people perceive excellence Um, And uh, not just for single clinical problems, uh, but excellence around the way they function in the department every day, how they feel when they show up to work, how they feel about the people that they work with, uh, and their desire to get better at what they do. Uh, Now, I think that those are certainly uh, outcomes worth chasing. And I'd hate to see them uh, get lost by a sole focus on uh, randomized control trial research. You're listening to Simulcast.
0: So very interesting and useful. And I think all that said, it's not to take away from the rigour with which this is done. And I think reading this really does synthesise a whole lot of literature very nicely in a short space. So if you haven't read much about simulation-based team training in these contexts, actually this is a great place to start because you see some of the work that people have done and clearly there's things to build on here. Uh, Any other thoughts from you, Ben?
1: Uh, Yeah, look, I... um I loved what you've had to say and wish that I'd thought of it before listening to her, but um, I did find the study really uh, confronting and frustrating, confronting fr- confronting in that it, you know, highlights again, you know, sometimes our educational foundations in SIM can often seem to be built on a, on a relatively fragile house of cards when we look at the hardcore evidence supporting our claims for uh, particularly the invoices we might be charging our services. But um, I do agree that, you know, the emphasis on RCT and essentially proving sort of dose superiority of SIM over other methods uh, isn't likely to find the true values. And I um, I I think that I look forward to uh, more work from Eve and others in terms of exploring uh, that qualitative aspect. And I think we just need, clearly need a, um, there's clearly a dearth of, uh emergency physician anthropologists out there and we need a few more but um i really admire that this study still took that accountability uh aspect and said look what is actually out there and let's keep holding us to task and so i i admire the spirit with which it was uh, written and uh i just appreciate that
0: Mm. Mm, absolutely thank you All right. Well, uh, I guess that wraps up our papers for this month, Ben. But uh, you want to give us a little bit of a prelude into what we're doing for February and uh, what kind of things people might like to join the discussion about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So look, uh, I'm going to start the year with a little bit of a classic paper. Um, We did a lot of new stuff last year. And um, this paper has repeatedly come up, even in a number of the studies we looked at this week, uh, and I think it's a really foundational and important concept that often, unfortunately, is still seen as fairly revolutionary when people read this for the first time. So we are going to look at the F word, and in specific uh, simulation terms, that means fidelity uh, in all of its controversy. And we're going to look at a paper by Hamstra et al., which was published in Academic Medicine in March 2014, entitled Reconsider. Reconsidering Fidelity in Simulation-Based Training, uh, and it's a fantastic article that deconstructs a lot of the bad habits and myths we've gotten into in terms of our obsession with, um, what's the right word, medutainment realism and immersive experiences and really takes a hard look at what is it that we need to achieve in sim to uh achieve impactful learning and how can we improve our nomenclature so that uh, we start thinking in the right way about this problem. And it's a fantastic read. Uh, Look forward to discussing
0: Mm it. And, Ben, this will probably come up in the discussion, but I think that was written at a time when we were thinking about mannequins and the technology versus fidelity uh, debate. I think we're revisiting this all over again with VR. And I think virtual reality is bringing this up again. It's kind of like, really, what are we then replicating within a virtual reality environment and where is the bang for buck in terms of the uh, functional task alignment?
1: 100%. I did a little trial of some VR training the other day and uh, <laughs> it's still not working for me. So uh, and I think this this is a great paper that, that we should um, – you know, consider when whenever we think about what our intervention is for and what we're trying to achieve. Mm.
0: All right well uh, simulcast listeners just a reminder if you want to read get the references to these papers uh, they're at uh, simulationpodcast.com in the episode description for this podcast and uh, don't forget if you want to rate us on iTunes that helps other people find simulcast and uh, with that we will sign off for simulcast Victoria Brazel and Ben Simon we'll see you in February. Good night. you're listening to, to simulcast.